Welcome to At The Intersection. I'm Marion. And I'm Brian. This is a podcast about policy, culture, identity, and how all those things intersect. Yeah, and today, or tonight, we are very excited to have our first crossover episode with the Black Futures Manifesto, so take it away. I'm Mariah M. And I'm Micah Gilmer, and this is the Black Future Manifesto. Welcome, everyone. The Black Future Manifesto is an audio archive with the goal of figuring out what do we need to do as black people to achieve liberation for all of us. Like, all. Not some. Okay, you with me. Okay, wonderful. <laughs> so we talked to special guests like we have tonight and other folks across the country that are working on issues of race, of class, of place, of gender, and confronting capitalism. So I get the pleasure to introduce our special guest today. We're going to start off with the interview. I won't call it the meat and potatoes. I'm going to call it the um, I'm going to call it the ham and collard greens portion <laughs> of the night, and then we'll move into like the plantains like and rice and beans later on, and finish with some pound cake. Yes. And a little bit of uh, sweet potato pie. So I get to introduce Jessica Barron. Jessica Barron is a sociologist, demographer, who spends most of her time thinking about dismantling systemic barriers that prevent racial and gender equity. So that's dope. She is a proud Blacksican from Los Angeles, California, and she loves nearly every sport. She loves bourbon, and she loves any sandy beach. So let's give it up for Jessica. Thank you, guys. Happy to be here on this first historic crossover episode. Excited to talk with both of you. So let's do this. Yeah. So, so Jess, we wanna, we're going to talk, obviously, about your book, The Urban Church Imagined, but also just about the bigger issues that it raises. Mm-hmm. Um, I really want to connect folks to a conversation around some of those challenges. So I, I guess the first question I have for you is just, how did you get to do this project? Like, how did that come about? Yeah, I mean, I was a master's degree student at the time, but I was really interested in kind of two patterns that were occurring. One, our city centers are becoming increasingly more racially diverse. So in the past 10 years, we've seen increased racial diversity within city centers. And we've seen also a resurgence of organizations moving back to city centers. So I was interested in how organizations were trying to diversify in this rapidly diversifying society and understanding kind of their inclusion efforts in doing that. Secondly, we also see churches moving back to city centers And for me, uh, congregations are the most preeminent organizational structure in the U.S., meaning there's more congregations than there are any other organizational structure. And they're also voluntary. So I was trying to understand people who are self-selecting to go into these predominantly white churches and try to diversify them that are in cities that have been historically hyper-segregated. How does this idea of race and class and consumption and religion all intersect together? Particularly, I thought this was interesting as well because for me, religion is one of the cornerstones of American society. Even if you're agnostic, you have probably grown up in a house or next to somebody who is religious in some sort of way. It also deeply impacts our political structures individually, community-wise, how we identify ourselves and how we understand the U.S. So those are all the dynamics that I was interested in in starting this research project that I did. I spent about 18 months at the church. So break it down for us a little bit. So you have this church that's mm-hmm. a mostly white church yep. that's going into Chicago, yep. the big city. The big city. <laughs> right. And so how did, it, how did people like conceptualize what it meant to be like an urban church, to be a church in Chicago? Yeah, so 
there's three kind of original concepts that I came up with the book to try to really answer that question. And the first is the racialized urban imaginary. I found that a lot of the white church leaders who were coming into the city had this idea of what a church in the city should look like. And I called it racialized urban imaginary because there's a racial component in them understanding what the city of Chicago looked like. People of color were had to be a part of their church, specifically black people. But you can really substitute that out for any type of organizational structure. So the racialized educational imaginary, the racialized organizational imaginary, just what folks are bringing into their ideas and perceptions of what this organization should look like. So for me, I tried to understand that framework when they were talking about the church and talking about the city and you know the ways in which they were talking about how they wanted to structure their church. Yeah, so if they're imagining this idea that a city is supposed to look a certain way and like we want to have colors of Benetton or whatever picture, like mm -hmm. what does that look like? What are the limits of that? Are they obviously they don't want to have a black church? Yeah, right? yeah. yeah, which is also there's you know in the first chapter they talk about we don't want to be a black church but we don't want to be a white church either. And so the way that they achieve this is through another concept I call managed diversity, and it's a technique they use really to curate diversity and control it within the church so that it really preserves their external identity as not being a white church. You know, so they're cooler than the other churches in the city, but internally it maintains the status quo. So the power is always shifting towards whiteness. So in that, I also found, though, that managed diversity really goes through four phases, and I talk about this in the third chapter, but the phases are first, you know, you have to imagine what diversity looks like. So I imagine that there's a lot of black men at the church, which was really particular to this congregation. Interesting um, how that, that was the first thing they yeah, imagined. Yeah. They were like, yes, black men. <laughs> Chicago, black imagined. men. We have to have them. <laughs> and after that, diversity becomes competitive, right? So, oh, those other churches are white. We have people of color. And then diversity becomes managed. We want to make sure that we have the pendulum doesn't switch too far. We have everybody that we need at the church, but it still looks cool, but it's not, you know, really pushing us. And then because it's not an authentic staple to the organizational structure, diversity becomes seasonal and people leave. You can't maintain folks of color when they're not really meant to be there. And then finally, after managed diversity, there's the idea of racial utility, which really crystallizes the gaze of the not just the white um, leaders, but also folks of color and how they understood their place within the church. But the idea of racial utility for me is really understanding how one's racial identity can be used for the larger corporate goal of keeping folks in certain positions and the authority figures that use particular racial identities for an end goal such as diversifying their church or making them look cool, those kinds of things. I feel like I've been one of those black people who I realized like, oh, y'all just want me here so y'all can feel cool. Yeah, and like, yeah, yeah. Yeah. you don't actually want this to be a multiracial space. You want it to be a white space that's cool because it's got some color to it. Mm -hmm. Like a sprinkle, right? Yeah, just a little sprinkle of yeah. color, a little bit of diversity, but not actual inclusion or anything like that. So yeah. can you talk a little bit more about how that sort of impacts the people of color who are in those spaces? I mean, you said that a lot of them will leave and then some will come back. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so I mean, there's this idea of emotional labor that a lot of the folks of color went through, particularly the black congregants, and I'll mostly address them tonight. But in the final chapter and in the fourth chapter, I talk about kind of why people stay and how they're utilizing the church in different ways. And I found that there were two main narratives. One was this idea of a higher calling or a higher purpose, feeling like these white kids, they're suburban white kids, they may have the resources, but we have the know-how, so we're gonna help them figure out how to create something because they have had generational wealth or they have had, you know, what have you. 
we can use their resources for the greater good. Or it was this idea. That sounds really familiar, by the way. Right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Look, you got, you know, this idea of, you know, in some ways kind of using the master's tools, if you will. And so I talk about kind of the church hustle in the fourth chapter and how black folks are maneuvering around some of those restraints of being in a white organization, but utilizing that for this ultimate idea because many of them wanted a authentic cross-cultural relationship and cross-racial relationship in particular because that was so foreign in a hyper-segregated city like Chicago. I mean, even in the research that I did with residential segregation, I found that most of the time, you know, black folks, when talking about the neighborhoods they wished to live in, they were racially diverse, meaning they wanted to be around Latinos, black folks, white folks, Asian, whoever. And so that was something that they could realize within this church. And secondly, you know, a lot of them grew up and went to traditionally black churches. And they felt like because of the tradition and because of a little bit more restrictive culture, they felt like they could achieve more without the restriction of the hierarchy that they found in those black churches. And so they wanted a different type of experience. So there was this entrepreneurial spirit. And then there was also kind of this idea of wanting to use the resources that were there that may not ever occur in another space in Chicago because it was so segregated in terms of the labor market. I mean, that makes sense. And I guess I also want to talk a little bit about you and your role, like you are a proud Blackfican woman uh, with a PhD. Woo-hoo. Yeah, there you go. Hey, hey. <laughs> and like academia is super white. Very. Sociology is super white. Even whiter. <laughs> just like the layers of whiteness just keep on. Just the whitest thing ever. So it's like, yeah. yes. like you are in here, like proud blacks again. You've got your curls out, you know, talking about race. And I just yeah. want to know, like, how do you feel like your identity played a role in the research that you were doing? And how do you feel like it played a role in just navigating a very white space? Yeah, so the method that I used is called ethnography, and that is the cornerstone of sociological inquiry and the majority of ethnographies are done by white men going into spaces or people of color and throughout my entire grad school experience I only read two other ethnographies that were done by black women but they were done black women traversing black spaces and so for me I really just tried to turn the method on its head and be a black Latina woman going into a white space and seeing what white people do. And so for me, I think that when we have perspectives and allow people who were on the receiving end of the science and allow us to be in charge of the knowledge production, what kind of inquiry are we going to get? What kind of insights are we going to get? We saw this with Black Panther and Crazy Rich Asians. When you start to put other people in the narrative, what other things are we coming into and coming to understand in a different and more full and expansive way? And so for me, it was really important to address that. And I'll probably write another piece on what it was like to be a black woman doing... Just low-key write another book. Right, quick, just, right? you know, doing... <laughs> doing you know, just like a piece. Just a method. But I, in, in general, though, it, it, it takes a lot of emotional flexibility to do ethnography, period. But then within the church, the pastors were nervous that men were going to want to sleep with me because I was a woman. And as if, you know, I couldn't do an interview without, I don't know, other things happening. Or or just people, the way that they addressed me at the church, the way that they would talk to me, I constantly had to navigate that with both my racial and gender identity in ways that I didn't find in other ethnographies. So I was kind of traversing spaces methodologically alone and then thinking through what is the science behind being this tool of measurement that no one ever uses to measure these types of patterns. Such an interesting like parallel, right? So you're studying black folks and other folks of color in this white space, but you're also navigating like this big white space, right, mm-hmm. in terms of the research um, and seeing the toll that it took on you, but and also sort of imagining like the toll that it's taken upon the people that you were working with. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and so 
we have to sit with what does it really mean to be integrated into a space? Like what does true integration look like? And I wanna just offer up, have we seen that before? If we really wanna go back to what segregation is, segregation was a separation of different races and literally different cultures, right? Different ways of living. So when desegregation happened, did integration happen? Like are those two things one and the same? And what I mean when I say that is integration doesn't look like just a sprinkle of brown or a sprinkle of blacksican on top of your vanilla ice cream cone, okay? <laughs> it looks like what are these spaces doing to make people of color, to make black people actually integral into the space, integral into the hierarchies and integral into the, the culture creation of that space. So I did wanted to talk more, Jessica, about were there any there any conversations around how people were trying to truly integrate? Was that something that came up in your research? Yeah, so I, I did about 55 interviews at the church over the course of the time that I was there, and a lot of them ended in tears, and a lot of people saying, like, this was therapy. I didn't know that I needed this kind of therapy because there is an, there is emotional labor when you're trying to integrate organizations that were never meant for you to be a part of. Um, even our churches in their most wildest dreams were the way that they were set up in the US in particular were very white, they were very black, they were very separated. And so what these folks were attempting to do and, and even you know taking a step back if you're not interested in churches, if you're just thinking about organizational structures in general, organizations were in so many ways really explicit in their exclusion and they were strategic in their exclusion. And so we haven't really had the same strategic measure to include folks. It's kind of haphazardly, we have a DEI trainer, I did this one training for two hours and it's like, girl, that is not enough. <laughs> and, and so just to expansively think about and the aspiration of wanting this church, that was so moving to me, but the emotional cost it took on so many of these folks, I don't know for them, if it was worth it or if there was a better way to go about it. But again, there's no pathway to look and see, oh, this, this place is included and, and very inclusive and it's done really well. And you would think at a voluntary space at a church which has these different moral codes in terms of inclusion, it would be kind of front and center in, in the lead, but it wasn't. And so I think there is an emotional cost that a lot of folks incurred trying to integrate spaces that were never meant for them to be a part of. Right. I, I think that's something that definitely resonates with me. Um, I mean, I work at a white-led, majority white, progressive policy organization. <laughs> I mean, progressive, and no names. <laughs> they, pay my, they pay my paycheck. That's why I'm <laughs> <the> <laughs> I didn't <listen. laughs> So, Shots but I, you know, I think, I think it, it's one thing to understand and to challenge white spaces that are you know, not doing the work that you want them to be doing. And it's something different to be doing that same challenging and fighting for that same space in those spaces where they're supposed to be on your side. And like, just as an example, I have a mug up here that says, how do you want your reparations? I took this to the office and I left, <laughs> I left it on the counter by accident and I lied to y'all not, my reparations mug got stolen by white progressive folks at my, and so I, you know. Are they sipping out of it now? They're sipping out of my, how do you want your reparations mug? I'm just like, did you take a picture? Is I, it I, a I should, I should like, have, I should have. I was like, you, you, you need a low jack <laughs> the next one. You like <laughs> underestimated the caucasity in that building. <laughs> <laughs> 
But I mean, so my lesson for the audience: never underestimate Caucasian. No, seriously. (laughs) (laughs) They stole the reparations mug. But like, (laughs) you know, for me, it brings up a bigger question of just, you know, how do you strike that balance of either expending the emotional labor that it takes to push those progressive space, those white progressive spaces to be what they should be mm-hmm. because they have resources. Mm-hmm. I mean, just to put it, you know, frankly, mm-hmm. and at what point is it not worth that, that emotional labor and should that be invested in black spaces mm-hmm. exclusively? Yeah, I mean, I think folks really wrestled with that because they came from black institutions, right? They came from black churches that they were very much involved in and then they were wanting to have this multiracial experience. And something I found really interesting though, I think even with the work that we do at Frontline, we know that if the leadership isn't on board, there's really not a lot you can do. And so I think they thought the leadership was on board and then realized when it wasn't, that's when people started to jump ship. So mm-hmm. I, I do think that inclusive spaces can happen, but I think everybody has to be on board and on the same page not just on board but like you know we're not on a cruise ship we're all on a rowboat together like you're just not watching me you know sing and dance and be you know your cool integrated black person but we're in this together in the trenches and so I think folks thought they were on a rowboat and realized they were on a cruise ship and it was like oh and we're the entertainment yeah. great right. that's tragically deep <laughs> <laughs> Titanic jump ship <laughs> I was, um, I was definitely curious about other folks on the panel's experience in terms of trying to integrate into a space. And again, what is that limit of, this is not my job to do, y'all pay me to do this, and not to open your eyes, wake up, and see me for my fuel of humanity, and not tokenism within space? So I went to, Char- I went to high school in Charlottesville. And I used to have to explain what Charlottesville was, but now I don't gotta do that anymore. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so you know, I applied for two schools post-undergrad, I applied to two HBCUs because I was done. I was like, you're not using me anymore. I need to work on myself. I'm not doing this anymore. And then I went to PWI graduate school, and then I ended up at a white progressive institution. So I'm still struggling with that question, you know, because I come home almost every day thinking, like, there are things I like about this, and there's places where I'm like, I just need to go back and protect myself. And so, you know, I'm struggling with that. I think for me, some of the way it manifests is that whether it was, like, going to majority white elementary, middle, high school, college, grad school, mm-hmm. right? Just never really connecting. Like never really trusting my teachers because I'd be one of the smartest kids or the smartest kid in class, but I knew like one day they'd, they'd shade me or there'd be something that was happening that was racist and like that would just completely t- off as a student. And so never really being able to be my full self, but also being guarded and protective and kind of like, I don't really care about my grades and da, 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 because like that was the way that I could cope with like this racist environment. Like that was the way that I protected myself and built like this black bubble within these institutions. And that's not the way you want to show up either, right? You know, you want to be engaged and connected and driven by your passion and and, and believing in what you're doing. You know, Brian and I used to work together at the same like predominantly white institution and I felt like I gave everything I possibly could to- Dog, you did. I really like- all of the energy that I had to make this place better for people of color and get race equity training and to get people to talk about race when it's an economic justice organization. So like, we have to talk about race, otherwise we're not talking about justice. And at a certain point you feel like, you are not just rejecting the principles that I'm trying to get you to believe in, you are rejecting me as a person, you're rejecting me as a black woman who's begging you to see me and to hear me and take my experience seriously. And so I bounced, like I, and I came to Frontline, which is like, 
you know, <laughs> the promised land, honestly. It was just like, oh, I can finally be, and like, I keep on saying to people, like, I'm no longer the angry black woman in the office, partly because I am less angry, and partly because, like, there's a and lot more of us. <laughs> right, like, we're all angry, there's but like, <laughs> but yeah, like, I am no longer like, oh, there goes Marion, angry about race stuff again. It's just like, oh, there's Marion, my colleague, my fellow human, who I see in all of her complexity, and Hangry. it has taken, I am constantly, like, <laughs> like, starting at 11 a.m., like, hey, do we have lunch? Like, is that happening? I'm like, oh, no, here she comes. <laughs> the hangry Marion. See, that's, and that's better than the angry black woman who's this making me feel bad because I'm low-key racist. Like. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. true. I went to a majority white high school. Literally, there was five black people, and we were all questioning, like, what that meant at that time. And um, I'll never forget when I was applying to schools, my guidance counselor was just like, oh, UNC's a reach. Apply to FAMU. Apply to Spelman. Apply to not predominantly white institutions, essentially. Apply to one of the best, like, apply to one of the best women's colleges in the country, but it's not as good as UNC. Exactly. Um, I did end up going to UNC Chapel Hill, but honestly, it was because it was for financial reasons. It was just like, who's going to give me enough money? So I'm not in crippling debt. So my Mm -hmm. mom, shout out moms, is not in crippling debt to get that done. I mean, that's an example of I'm here in your space, but you're not doing your due diligence to make sure I'm fully integrated. Because, like I said, if you would have known, Spellman wanted my ass, and I wanted Spellman, but money in terms of getting folks, Mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. getting folks there. Mm -hmm. Shout out to Foresight. Because <laughs> all of us ain't had that, so yeah. right. right. I was like, I want the most expensive place to go. <laughs> have great lunch. Right. <laughs> like, look at the cafeteria. I'll eat forever. Right. And so, um, also, my experiences in, in terms of getting older is I feel like I've gotten jaded way too quickly. Like, yeah. but yes, if it's a black, I'm probably part of it. Like, that's that's literally where I'm at at this point. And I also feel like in these spaces parts of my identity are valued Mm -hmm. and um, are actually seen. Like I feel like the first time I was complimented on my rigor was when I was in a black organization or about my passion. My passion was seen as passion is not as aggressiveness Mm -hmm. in like a black organization. And again, I don't, I think it's because how are you being intentional about the culture you shape and the people you welcome into the space? And again, what does welcoming look like? Do you work in your space and, um, do you ever go to an open space and people ask you why you're there? Like, are, you, are they introducing themselves to actually get to know you or they're like, why are you in my space? Mm-hmm. Something that I was thinking about while writing the book and even as we're talking about, so many, again, of the black folks that I interviewed wanted this meaningful cross-racial type of relationship. And so what does it mean then for black folks to foster racially diverse places versus trying to integrate white spaces, what does it mean for us to take the helm of the multiracial movement and diversify our spaces in that way? Is that something that we want to do? Is that something that we can do? And in part, too, because the aspiration, whether it was in the quantitative data that I looked at every day when I did residential segregation stuff, qualitatively interviewing all these people that always was brought up, you know, I, I want to live next to so-and-so. I, I would live next to, you know, whoever, whoever. But you don't, though. Right, but you don't. But, you know, and then wanting to have, and then seeing 
Also, you know, we're seeing so many black folks leaving traditionally black churches and moving into multiracial churches. And again, these are voluntary. You don't have to go to church. You have to go to school. Allegedly, you have to go to work, but like you don't have to go to church. And so for people who are doing this day in and day out, like I just want us to kind of think about what does it mean for black people to lead the multiracial movement? So Marion and I are both trained policy analysts. Sure. Um, and so uh, one thing that we often kind of address is what is the actual policy solution? Mm -hmm. So like what are the actual systems that we can build that our tax dollars can fund, um, that we can vote on, that can start to move us towards where we want to be? Um, so whether it be talking about equity and inclusion in, in white spaces, um, you know, whether it's in the workplace, in Congress, wherever it is, um, we kind of like to pivot and talk about um, structures. And so my favorite way of talking about structural reform um, is under the guise of reparations. Um, and so I'm, you know, we asked, we asked the question earlier, um, and some of you all have answered, how do you want your reparations? Um, and so I, I do want to read a couple of answers from the audience, but I'd also like to kind of have a conversation about what are some of the ways that we can, um, I, I like to use the term restorative economic justice because yes. it resonates with the white folk. That is a coping mechanism. <laughs> coping mechanism. And so, you know, what are some of the ways that we can strive towards reparations, strive towards restorative economic justice? And just to read a few, um, mm -hmm. and you know, and we ask this question a lot of times, a common answer we get is cash. Yep, and without so, strings We got also some audience responses around coping mechanisms. Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to kind of close out our conversation around these white spaces piece. So before we like, this is Drive why we need the reparations, right? It's because of all this. So someone who's in the audience, and, and we'll, hear, we'll, we'll do Q&A with the audience in a little bit, so we get a chance to talk. But we want to just kind of read some of these out loud because they're powerful. Yeah. Um, the energy that I save not dealing with white supremacy <laughs> would be used to just bring joy to the lives of people mm. that I interact with mm. in any way that I can. Wow. Um, the same person wrote, my coping mechanism for dealing with majority white spaces is to be unapologetically black. Yes. I embrace the parts of my culture that white people tend to shame, such as my natural hair, full lips, style, etc. Okay. I would put watermelon and chicken in there too. But that's not what you don't like. know who wrote that. Don't misrepresent. Don't do too that. Much, too much, too much. Team too much. So, no, people aren't ready to go there yet. I'm just saying. We need more bourbon, that's the problem. Watermelon was black people and slaves fruit of choice because mm -hmm. it had water yes. and you are hydrated. Yes when you need to pick cotton and hurt your hands in the sun, okay? We're smart. Great. All right, history. All right. <laughs> if you don't like watermelon, I think you're a sociopath or something. I mean, I'm delicious. No, like probably a war criminal you if you don't like watermelon. Going. <laughs> you're going to get jumped. <laughs> if I didn't have to deal with white supremacy along with patriarchy, ooh, heteropatriarchy, ooh. ooh. Oh, I know who that one. Ooh. And... <laughs> Capitalism and other uh, related oppressions, I would use my energy to help create and co-create spaces that educate more people on how we share power, mm. how we heal together, and how we reckon with the fullness of the human experience. Okay. Yeah. I'm finding you. We should talk later. I know who that is. You know, you know. <laughs> oh, I know who it is, too. <laughs> Where are you, honey? Um, what is your mechanism for dealing with majority white spaces? Decompressing with my black friends, family, and community. Hey. Coping mechanisms. Okay, black music examples. Nope. <laughs> Trap. <laughs> Gospel. Yeah. Yes. And R and B. Now, yeah. is that like is that like Marvin Gaye R and B or is this like Let It Burn R and B? Oh, that's yeah. That's a whole. That's another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> 
Do you have any? Yeah, so I have a few um, coping mechanisms as well. Um, repression, mm. code switching, being quiet, and then seek out others who feel othered. What is your coping mechanism for dealing with majority white spaces? I use walkout if warranted, raw transparency, unsolicited humor. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, whoever this is, you bad all by yourself. Like, I will walk out first of all. So I'm super, I'm glad, thank you for everybody who participated. Yes. And um, also just to think about again, what do we have the energy to create for ourselves? Like, what do we have, what can we manifest now to make a future better for those beyond us? What, what are we willing to hold? Can we say no to things? Can we walk away from situations? Like, when do you do that? Do you tell white people about themselves mm -hmm. when they need to hear it? Is that, is that your job? Is that, do you think that's your role? Um, personally, not my role. Again, if, it's, if the name is black in it, I'm probably in it. <laughs> That's not my role to teach white people about themselves, but in terms of protecting yourself, protecting your joy, protecting the amount of emotional labor to devote to other people, to devote things you actually care about, how do we make spaces for that? In terms of answering your first question, Brian, I feel like that's my reparations is taking my emotional labor back mm -hmm. and be, being able to give it yes. to people who I actually want to give it to. Reclaim your time. Yes, <laughs> reclaim my time. Maxine? Okay. <laughs> Michael, you want to answer? I don't want money. Like, as much as I like money, I want black folks to be in power. And I want us to be in power not just in schools and not just uh, in our communities and not just in our neighborhoods, but in this country. I feel like we've had 400 years of white folks running this country, and that's really what I care about. Because I, you know, I like money. I'm not anti-money. I just feel like. Why did your voice change? <laughs> I like money. I'm not anti-money. I love that money. <laughs> I just didn't want to come across. <laughs> Real <laughs> sensual, Michael. <laughs> <God, laughs> Sounds like Midnight like Storm over here talking about money. I say I like money. In <laughs> if you don't like money, people don't trust you. <laughs> like, Who is this guy? Where is McCarthy? <laughs> um, <laughs> but yeah, for me personally, I, I feel like the lie that like money is gonna is is what we're chasing out here is like the lie, the underlying lie that led to like right, right, capitalism right, 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 and right, racism right. and all that stuff, right? And so, the you know, for me, yeah, that's what I want. I want people to have the power to to live their lives the way they want to live them. Right. Jessica. Okay, so I'm a sociologist. So if you're gonna ask me about a societal issue. <laughs> it ten, it, it, they put me in a tailspin. Can I say, we, 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 we posed this question like what, almost a week ago, right? Yeah. And Jessica said. immediately said, you can't ask me that. I was like, you don't know how paralyzing that question. I'm sitting as stiff as possible right now, hoping that you don't see me. No, so unclench your fist, unclench your fist. You when I tell you, I listen to every single one of their episodes again, just to like hear how people answer that question because I was trying to do recon because I'm a researcher and a sociologist and again, it's stressful. Me out. However, my first response was like bands. I want bands, <laughs> lots of bands. But then I was like, you know, we're thinking about, I'm thinking in terms of, you know, as a demographer, thinking about patterns. And so what we do know, and Stacey Abrams talks about this, is the generational wealth gap. We do know that the debt that black folks are incurring, even though we are entering into 
education in higher rates than our white counterparts. We are incurring more debt. We have to take on more debt. And so afterwards, we do not have the purchasing power to enter into the housing market, which is the way we pass generational wealth down. We're not able to travel. We're not able to do certain things economically that push us in this country. And so I want all of our debt erased. I want all of our parents' debt erased, first of all. And then, if you all have seen the Carters, Album, yes, hard left. Come with me. <laughs> Come with me. At the end, yeah, one of one of the songs, it's just, you know, there's all women and they're talking about the society that they have created. So I love you men. Great. Come aboard. However, I would Great. like to see Great. this is like Michael loves money. Right. <laughs> Michael loves money. Love you all here. Thank you. But I would love to see a caucus of women because we have held down this country for so long. We have voted. We have done everything. I would like us to see us at the helm making these decisions for our community because when you are constantly so you're socialized, the way that we've socialized women to take care of people, to take care of society. We are thinking life in mind and not death because of war and other things. We're thinking about life and how to prolong life, how to make life the best. And you know, so if we're not thinking in this kind of war mentality, which is how a lot of our political leaders think, if we're thinking about how do I make people live, live longer, live stronger, live better, that is the society that I want to see. I'll be the president. Just kidding. I'm kidding. <laughs> Absolutely not. Absolutely not. I was. I just had a thought when you were um, talking about um, your version, Jessica. Was that is um, black women are the most educated women, like the educated mm -hmm. demographic in the United States. And I was seeing posts about all these Ivy Leagues getting rid of LSAT requirements, getting rid of. PSAT scores and the running joke to laugh to keep from crying is as soon as black people get to a level of the education right. needed, those requirements aren't there anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. On that note. <laughs> <laughs> Mary. Um, I guess I am not, I am comfortable being an anti-capitalist unlike Mike, like I say, I've said this <laughs> numerous times on the podcast, I don't think reparations works unless we burn the whole thing down first. You cannot make something that was built to oppress. There's no way to repair that. Yep. You have to just demolish the whole thing and I demolish it and make it like actually a multiracial, multi-gender, like multi-identity community. Like you can't take this white patriarchy, this heteronormative patriarchy and say, okay, well, we'll fix it now. Like we'll give y'all some money and we'll give y'all some whatever and now it's fine now you're repaired you just you have to erase the whole thing and start over there's no other way i don't know how we do that but like that's the only thing that i think makes sense so if marion gives you a text like leave the building in five minutes, <laughs> you know why it is all coming it's getting down burnt the revolution has the started ground. i'd be like Ooh, revolution i have i mean i, I have a playlist on spotify just for this like <laughs> the revolution will be lit you can find it on spotify it's <laughs> because, of, because of fire Oh, I, see, I don't want to share my reparations after you because you're like revolution. I'm like, burn it all down. You're like, oh, like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm usually that one in the room. Yeah. Um, that's why we're friends. Exactly. Um, no, so I think for me, the biggest one, and there's a lot of different parts to, the, to that question, and my answer always changes the more I hear and learn from people. And so I hope that, you know, in five years or six months from now, I'll have a different answer. But I want to see, just really practically, I want to see a weighted electoral system. Mm. So I want to see a, a system where not everybody should have the same amount of votes. Black folks should have more votes. Mm -hmm. Black like, women like should have more goat. votes. <laughs> Black non-gender conforming people yes, should have more votes. more votes. Black trans women should probably have the most All amount the of votes. votes. 
And so I want to see it. I want to see that. The whole vote. As the demographer in the room, I'm like, yes, do all those things. I want to see that system in place for as long as we've had an electoral system where not everybody has been able to participate. Yes. So what is that, 400 years or so? Yep. I think that's how long we should have a weighted system. We should then check in, um, see how things <laughs> are going. See how things are going. How y'all feeling? Um, the and, then, and, then, <laughs> and then we'll make adjustments from there. So that's what I, that's how I want my reparations. I like that. I'm here for it. I will measure, I'll measure the outcomes. Thanks. You'll be yeah. there in 400 years. <laughs> so yeah, I guess we're about to go into our Q&A. What are the things you can hold? What are the spaces you occupy? And then what do you feel like is in uh, um, your power and not your responsibility necessary, your power and what your limit is in terms of creating a space that's truly yours, not just one you occupy? Anybody else have any? I do actually, uh, as a coping mechanism, I just want to give a shout out to therapy and specifically mm -hmm. having a black woman as my therapist has just Same. changed my life so much because I don't have to explain any of the stuff that I'm going through. I can be like, you know, he's one of those white dudes who says bloody, bloody, bloody. And she's like, no, yeah, I know. I get you. Like, <laughs> and like, it's made such a difference in my life to just have this person who just 100% understands and there's no pressure at all. And so I highly recommend if you don't have a therapist right now, grab one. If you have one, grab a second one. Like, it's just. Ooh. It's just, it's great for, I think it's great, and I think it's a great way to just sort of take back your time and take back your energy. Just be somewhere that's just focused on you, how you're feeling, and how you can cope better. Yeah, yeah I'll just say, and something that I, I've actually learned earlier this week, I was listening to another podcast. Um, it's called How to Survive the End of the World. <laughs> I do listen to other podcasts. And they were interviewing um, two women, and they lead a black-led political consulting firm in the Midwest. And essentially, she was addressing how does she deal with the question of you're campaigning for these Democrats who aren't great, they're just mediocre, how do you reconcile that? And her answer was she gave an analogy of Harriet Tubman. She was like, Harriet Tubman, she took a break from time to time. She stopped at safe houses, and she knew that the safe houses were not the destinations. And so you, it's okay to realize that where you are in your life, if you're working for a white-led organization that's just not doing exactly what you would want them to do, um, if you're in this space because you got to pay rent and pay childcare because that's expensive, Ooh. if you're doing that, it's a safe house. It's not your end destination. It's okay Ooh. to be in your safe house. It's Ooh. okay to be in your safe house and to bring people along with you, but it's a part of the process. So don't snap for me. Snap for the black women who <laughs> shared that with yes. me. Um, and we will link to that podcast in our show notes. Yeah, absolutely. But you got to subscribe. <laughs> <laughs> So we're going to do Q&A, and we really want to have a conversation with you all. So if you have a comment, really, you don't feel like you got to put it in the form of a question or something. But we <laughs> do want to have a comment with, like, a conversation with all of you and not just, like, one of you that talks the whole time. So, <laughs> so if you're one of those people, just <laughs> so stay like, seated. Maybe if you wrote a note, unless you were feeling, like, truly pushed, have somebody else talk. And um, just find, raise your hand. Monet will find you. She's going to be our runner for the time. But questions, maybe even the questions you didn't get to answer. Where that came up during the episode. Lock eyes, lock eyes. Slowly hand her the mic so she can. Yes. yes. Um, this is a fabulous conversation. I'm curious about the space that we can find between burn it all down and live within right these white spaces and survive because. How do you talk to a therapist about, you know, like I want I want to see the revolution in my lifetime, but I also don't see anything changing without us starting from ground zero. Right? So 
I have a, I think I have something on that. Um, I organize with Black Youth Project 100. I'm the current co-chair of the Durham chapter here. And a lot of what we talked about was um, strategy versus tactics, right? So a strategy might be um, liberation and a, a tactic to get there could be voting. And the reason why it could be voting is because voting affects your now and how do you try to live and exist in your now, very similar to the safe houses. So what, again, what effective change can you make that's literally within your power to still be able to try to do more than exist, but like thrive in the spaces that you occupy? I mean, I'm I'm not for finding a middle ground, so I can't answer that question. <laughs> I'm just trying to burn it all down slowly. I mean, I would also say find yourself an elder because, like, my grandmother is my thermometer. She went to Fisk University in the '50s. She was arrested at a sit-in at a Woolworths counter. There's and a she, picture of her in the Black Smithsonian. And she's upset right now. So I know things are bad right now. Um, <laughs> you know, but I know, you know, in 2008 she was ecstatic. She was crying, and so. I knew that we weren't where we wanted to be, but that was it. There was progress, and so I kind of use her to measure: Are we where we need to be? Are, should we be pissed off right now? Um, should we be celebratory right now? What do we need to focus on? And so that that's helped to ground me a lot. I think building safe houses matters, right? Like to use your Harriet Tubman analogy, like not that, my analogy, not yours. The the wonderful black woman who from the other podcast <laughs> that shared that. Her, they don't her have a name. Analogy. Um, <laughs> Yeah, we're just trying to build spaces where we can we can we can come together, we can recover, right? I think it's important and being intentional about when we step out of that, that we know what we're getting into, that we know like we're we're stepping into a battlefield, but that there's a place to go to be safe. Any other questions? Sure. All right. Um, so my question's uh, for Jessica. Um, you mentioned you spent 18 months at the church, and I was I was kind of wondering when I think of, of church, and I think of that in the context of race and black church, um, my first thought is denominations. Mm -hmm. Of course, we all grow up in you know Baptist, Amy, Zion, various churches of God and Christ. Mm -hmm. And do you think that, I'm not sure, and well, I guess my first question is, what is the denomination of the church that you spent your 18 months at? It was non-denominational. It was non-denominational. Mm -hmm. Which okay. is a lot of multiracial churches are non-denominational. Yeah. Do you think that denominational churches, maybe more those that are traditionally white, like Catholics or um, Methodist churches, who are trying to move into urban spaces versus maybe more predominantly white churches that are maybe Baptist or Amy Zion would have more success or less success integrating different races into their church. So there has been a lot of work done on denominational affiliation and racial kind of integration into churches. And so typically churches with a little bit more structure, they have more control of who they put as the pastor. And so a lot of ways that some of Catholic parishes or Anglican churches are trying to diversify is actually putting folks of color in leadership versus having it be from the bottom up, it's from the top down. However, the largest mega churches, the largest ones that are multiracial are usually led by a white pastor with that is non-denominational, so they're not really kept to any standard or have to answer to anyone, and, which a lot of people of color who are leaving their predominantly black or Latino or whatever churches, that actually appeals to them because they've been under a denomination for so long, having a non-denominational approach to their faith is in some ways for them they feel more free, and so that's why they're choosing those churches. But there was a great piece that came out in the time, maybe, but it was called The Silent Exodus, Black People Leaving Multiracial Churches in the Age of Trump. 
one of the biggest issues, and there's another, there's two really good books, Divided by Faith and Ambiguous Miracles, maybe, yes. But uh, these books talk about how folks of color in many ways assume that when they're coming into these progressive spaces, these white spaces politically, that these white folks also align with this idea of justice. And they find out, especially during election years, that that is actually not the case. And so for a lot of these black folks and just folks of color in general in these multiracial churches, they found during kind of the Trump election that a lot of these white folks voted for Trump and they were like, how, how does that go together? And for white folks, they're like, how does that not go together? And so, so we talk about this huge divide that happens also um, ideologically, which is another reason why these churches really struggle to maintain black folks over a course of you know, however many years. Hi. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for your talk. It's it's really a pleasure to hear you and see you. Um, I was interested in something that may be a little bit outside the scope of your project. So yeah. if this is something that you're kind of just thinking of and responding to on the fly, that's fine. Um, the church that we go to is mostly black and Hispanic, mm-hmm. um, Central American Hispanic. Um, but there are a few white people that attend the church. Um, and I wouldn't say it's quite urban, but um, it, it draws from a lot of people from Raleigh. I'm just kind of curious, do you have a sense for situations where the integration model or proportion is reversed, right? We're talking about white people coming into black churches directly as a result of their presence in a city that's changing. Mm -hmm. Um, Do you have a sense of what their expectations are as far as being integrated um, or why, what their motivations are? Mm -hmm. Um, And again, responding directly to the, the idea that they're there because the city is changing. Yeah. So I... I often get approached by a lot of black pastors in particular who are seeing their neighborhoods change and they, they're kind of wrestling with this idea of integrating their churches, not necessarily because of this idea about you know this biblical concept in any way, but it's more so driven by the demographics of what's happening and the need for survival in a rapidly changing you know, location. And I have thought about this term and I'm thinking it and I was talking to my dad and my sister are both pastors as well. And I, we've been talking about this a lot and I have this idea about how churches, black churches in particular, are preparing for gentrification. So they moved away from mass choirs and now they have, you know, an eight person band kind of like, you know, multiracial churches do. And so I see these kind of organizational structures starting to prep and prepare for what they think is coming but also wanting to maintain their own livelihood in ways. So these are the organizational practices that they're negotiating, just like I saw managed diversity with the church that I, I studied. I'm seeing other churches, Latino churches, black churches, really starting to shift the way that they organize their services to be more accommodating so that they're not gonna have to shut down their doors and a white church comes and takes over, but now we're gonna try to figure out how we can still stay in this place. So this idea of gentrifying churches, I think is something that potentially might be the next wave of how we understand gentrification. I haven't written anything yet, but that's just an idea. Yes. <laughs> I haven't put anything on there, so don't ask me, like, oh, can you find this, idea? can you tell me about this idea? We'll be, like, no, we'll be back this time next year to discuss Jessica's next book. <laughs> Great talk, y'all. I'm uh, really enjoying the conversation this evening. And uh, my question, I had to, I'm going to go with go with this one. So I want to run with, you know, the revolution end of the world. So my, my question <laughs> is one. I didn't say end the whole world. That's not. Well, I mean, right. So we're going to, if you're going to burn yeah. things down. So <laughs> let's say we have a, you know, a planned 
some kind of nuclear uh, asteroid Ooh. is coming, you know, and you and you're in the bunker, right? The five of y'all get to be in the bunker of the folks who are going to survive this thing, you know, Whoa. whatever is going to start over. Okay, what are the three cultural practices, oh, artifacts, no. <laughs> traditions that you're you're gonna bring and keep when we start whatever is new, sir? That is a wild question. I got it. I got I it. I love it. I it is a it. wild question. Outcast. Outcast. Dylan. Dylan. I'm bringing bad boy. I'm bringing Just the whole dungeon family. Right. The whole dungeon family. That's all we need. I think we got it. I think. Oh, are we? Are we? Are we gonna answer? Maybe? No. Yeah. We have, we have to think about. I'm this. overwhelmed. So I'm. Right. Again, pretending I have my invisibility cloak on and I'm hoping no one sees me. Nerd. Um, I want, I want like books. My first love was like books. I didn't like people. I like books. <laughs> and like, and then I can like find people in the books and find myself in those books, um, and then that turned into writing. But I think I need books. So um, quiet time. You know, do I have like a corner in this bunker? <laughs> I'm gonna need that. We, we will okay, get I'm gonna need that. I'm gonna need that corner. Um, I don't know. I kind yeah. I just I like alone time. I feel like I'm very fortunate <laughs> to know the difference and understand the difference between loneliness and being alone. And I truly value my like alone time. Um, Cause I love y'all. I was like, no, we I was just heard. like, these are not going here. I mean, I mean, only four other people you see for the rest mm -hmm. of your life. Oh my god! Like, you know, you're gonna need some time. Yeah. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna take that. Mm -hmm. Okay. I, I got that's my two. I think what I want are cookbooks, mm -hmm. and not just like regular old like you know published <laughs> cookbooks, but I want the index cards that are stuck yeah, in yeah, between yeah, yeah, yeah. the post-it notes. You know, that's what I want. Michael Twitty talks perfectly about this. He's a chef and an author and black and Jewish and talks about the importance of food and culture and history. But I, you know, for me, and everybody who knows me knows how important food and cooking is to me, but for me, that's how culture and history and tradition and scholarship and all these things gets passed down, at least in my tradition. It's through food and through cooking and learning. In the mark, you know, that, that like I said, not the technical. Fr I don't need a French omelet, but what I want is my grandmother's. I want my grandmother's seven, seven, uh, seven up cake recipe. Th those are the things that I want. I'm paralyzed, so I'm not. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. Like, I don't know. It's not as concrete as that, but I think just this idea of like of like healing and and taking that seriously as a as a constant and consistent journey. And I think the other thing for me is like the outdoors is like that. I think if if it's just us, we'll probably have lots of time to roam around the outdoors. Um, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I think we're in a bunker. I don't. <laughs> well, we're gonna get out of the bunker. Oh, if it's okay. just us in the bunker forever, no, yeah, yeah, yeah. we're just gonna. That's a wrap. We could all drink some Kool Aid. <laughs> Somebody get Micah some Kool Aid and watermelon ASAP. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think just that, like traditions of healing that have been part of our culture, right? And I think there are traditions that were in some ways like beaten out of us and that we're not allowed to us, um, but they're ones that we're rediscovering right now and I think it's really core cool to us going forward together as a people. I think one thing that I've had to really unlearn or like the voice I guess in my head that I've had to silence is like the middle-aged white dude in a suit who's like, 
this isn't right. Like, y'all are doing too much. Like, anytime, I mean, like, an example would be, and I have a, a very specific example from Frontline, that, like, we start all of our check-ins saying, like, how are you doing as a person? What are you bringing to this conversation today? And the first couple times we did it, I was like, this is a little touchy-feely. I don't know about all this. I don't care about how people are doing as a person. I'm, I care about the work. But that's not true. Like, I am a human being, and we are all human beings, and being seen and having people ask, like, how are you doing as a human being? is incredibly valuable, and it's something that I think a middle-aged white dude in a suit would be like, nah, that's too touchy-feely. And so I think the principle that I'd want to bring to the bunker is making sure that we just silence that voice, and everything that we do is actually valuing each other as people and not as widget makers or as, you know, not being valued based on our productivity, but being valued based on our humanity. I think one thing, too, is just like the preservation of language, whatever languages and dialects that we come from and speak and know there's so much identity wrapped up in who you know and who you are by the language that you speak. And it's a lot of that was beaten out of us, a lot of that was taken away from us, so that we've had to preserve is really amazing. So thank you again so much, everybody, for coming and supporting the Black Future Manifesto. And at the intersection.